It's been several years ago, but there was a series of movies that came out based on J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings. Lauren and I were newly married, and we wanted to go and see the first movie. It's called Fellowship of the Ring. And I will be honest with you, this genre of movies, it's called fantasy. It's not really our jam, but we understood that, I mean, we knew who Tolkien was. We knew this was a pretty amazing story. And so uh, we decided to go. I will also confess I had never read the book, even though it's a very popular book. Uh, but I was going to do what I normally do when I haven't read the book. I was going to watch the movie. And so we bought our tickets and we went to see Fellowship of the Ring. And we're seeing all things play out there on the screen. And we're introduced to Frodo, who discovers this ring that he now has possession of. And very early in the movie, we discovered that, oh, the the point of, of Frodo having this ring of immense power is he's got to get to Mordor and he's got to return it to where it was created because this ring just has so much power and it could potentially destroy his life and it falls into the wrong hands. It could destroy the lives of others. And so you see Frodo in this tension between uh, do I exploit this power? How do I use this power? What's the right thing to do with this power that I have by this one ring to rule them all? And so early in the movie you saw, oh my goodness, they're going to get together. There's going to be different mythological creatures that are going to join Frodo on this uh, journey, and they were going to go to uh, Mordor to drop the ring in and return it to where it was created. And I guess I just didn't know enough about the series. I thought they were going to do all of that in one movie. Um, just a little spoiler alert, they, they don't. And the movie hit about like the hour 45 mark, and I leaned over to Lauren and I was like, how are they going to wrap this thing up, man? Because we were thinking about all the other things that we wanted to do. And she's like, I don't really know. And, and then they lost us somewhere in Middle Earth. I'm not sure. Um, but the next thing I know, the credits are rolling and Lauren's leaned up against me and I'm leaned up against her. And we are fast asleep um, during Fellowship of the Ring. I, I say all that to say uh, that genre of movies is, is not our jam. But... How many of you just, you just decided you cannot be my friend? If you don't like the Lord of the Rings, we cannot be friends. Okay, thank you. I see that hand. Um, and, 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 and I would just say I've, I've learned, certainly learned to love the series of movies, and I am going to commit to read the book. I think I actually would enjoy the book better. Also, it's helpful to level set expectations to know that you know, this is going to take a while. I think that would help me out too. But I, I bring it up because there's a new installment of The Lord of the Rings. It's streaming on a major platform now. It's called The Rings of Power. And it imagines what it was like before the rings were created and before Dark Lord Sauron uh, became a thing. And, and so that's streaming on a major platform. And, and I've sort of jumped into that and I'm exploring that. I'm really liking it. It's, it's really cool. But Tolkien, by the way, the Lord of the Rings novel was voted like Britain's best loved novel of the 20th century. I mean, it's a really, really big deal. Um, so don't fall asleep in it if you're watching the movie. But what Tolkien is doing with this, with this story is, is he's helping us understand the tension between uh, the tension that happens when we have power, 
when we have absolute power. The ring, when Frodo puts the ring on, it enables him to take life and to create life and to do all kinds of things that were previously unavailable to him. It seriously is one ring to rule them all. It is a ring of immense power. And Tolkien, in writing the book, is asking the question of, of, the, of readers, what will we do with this kind of power, with this kind of influence? What kind of people will we become when given this kind of power? And I, and I say that to say, have you ever taken stock of the power and the influence that you have? You may not feel like you have one ring to rule them all. You may not feel that you have absolute power in any part of your life. You may feel like your life's completely out of control right now. But I would say to you that you have some kind of power. Maybe you don't even know it. There's positional power. You might be in a position of leadership. You were elected to it or you earned it through a series of promotions at your job. And you hold a certain position. You have a title. And with that title, you are able to make certain decisions and make certain calls and wield authority in certain directions. So some of us have positional power. Some of us have financial power. And I think maybe financial power is, is really the one ring to rule them all. Whoever has the most money usually has a lot of power. And so maybe you've been blessed with certain resources. You know, Jesus never said money was bad. In fact, Jesus continually talks about money and he says it's a lever, essentially what he's saying. He doesn't say it's a lever. But essentially what we see in the Gospels is Jesus saying, Money is a lever to accomplish the purposes of the kingdom. It's a power that some of us, in large degrees, have been given. So maybe you have financial power. Maybe you have, this could be the greatest power of them all. I know I just said money was, but this might even be better than money. You have relational power. You have a rich network of relationships. You have curated those relationships through work or through other friendships or through other organizations. And, and you know that if you're in need of something, it just takes a phone call or a text message because of your vast network of relationships. That's relational power. You have influence with people and, and they're willing to help you out and partner with you in certain things. All of these kinds of power are not bad. Positional power is good and necessary. Financial power is a lever that can be used to accomplish the mission of God, and relational power is, is how we do a lot of that. Everyone has power. In fact, when, we, when, when Adam and Eve were created, the Scripture tells us that they were created in the image of God. They had these God-like qualities that mirrored who God was, and then God puts the man and the woman in the garden and says, have, and said, have dominion over the garden rule over the garden, steward the garden. In fact, we're going to put you in charge of naming the animals. That's positional authority that Adam and Eve have to name the animals. We also are created in the image of God. We have that kind of power, and we're given this vocation to steward certain things and have dominion over certain things. And so power isn't bad, but power can fall into the wrong hands, and it did in the garden. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against what God had told them. And sin entered into the equation. And then this power that we have is suddenly perverted by selfish ambition and desire. And humanity figures out pretty quickly that they can use 
financial, positional, and relational power to accomplish their own agenda and not the agenda of God. And so part of what it means to be the people of God, to be the church, is to understand the ring of power that we have. The power that we have. Followers of Jesus are called to discern between powers that give life and those that destroy it. We have power and we have potential to promote life and give life and to be life-giving for the world and to be a healing presence for the world. We can partner with God in human flourishing all throughout our community and our world. This is power that we have, but we also can take life. We can destroy it. We can manipulate. We can coerce. We can maim. We can kill with the power at our disposal. And so the church has a very important job this morning. We have to discern. Are we, are we using our powers to create life or are we using our powers to take life? Are we using our powers to partner with God or are we using our powers to work against the plans and the purposes of God? And so Peter is writing to the church in 1 Peter 5 and he's wanting them to understand that these people with positions in the church need to be mindful of how they use their power and their influence. So let me read what our host read for us again. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's a quote from Proverbs 3. So Peter goes on, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around Middle Earth like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Some of you got it. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. These are closing remarks. Peter is finishing his letter, and these are the last instructions that he gives to the church. And he's addressing elders. In the Greek, it's presbyters. And it's just this word that captures those who have positions of leadership in the church. And he's not, he's not only addressing those who are well along in age, although at that time, those that were appointed presbyters we're probably a little more advanced in years. It's not exclusively 
uh, elders in the terms of those with, with certain, uh, who, who have reached a certain age. But it's people whom God has appointed, who the church has decided have leadership uh, in, in the church. And if I were to offer a 21st century parallel between our context and the people that P- Peter was addressing, think about our church and think about our local church board. They, these are elected leaders. These are people that a nominating committee have said these are people who they exhibit spiritual maturity, they exhibit a commitment to the church and to Christ and to his kingdom. And so these women and men, we are nominating to the church to be our leaders and, and to, to help accomplish the mission of the church. Those would be our presbyters or our elders. And then our church board also works with our pastoral staff. And these are women and men who have accepted a call of God to full-time vocational ministry. They've gone through an educational process. They've been ordained in the church. And together, the pastoral staff and the church board form a leadership team. But these are not the only leaders in the local church. These are not the only people who would be addressed as presbyters here in 1 Peter chapter 5. I think this is a word for all of the people of God. Because you don't have to be a board member or an ordained minister in the church to understand that you have responsibilities. You have leadership potential. You have power. We all have power. We all have the ability to do certain things for God and to partner with Him in the human flourishing that He, des- has, that he desires for the world. And so here we are hearing this word from 1 Peter, all of us. And I would remind us that at this point in the evolution of the church, this is 30 years after the resurrection, early in the days of the church, the, the, the believers thought, man, the return of Christ is imminent. Like he's coming back tomorrow. And so uh, that's exciting. And I want to be a part of that. And after a few years, after one generation of Christians died, they begin to think, well, what happens to Christians who die before Christ returns? And so Paul addresses some of that in some of his letters. And then as another kind of decade kind of rolls on, and we're now raising up our second and third generation of Christians, it became clear that each community of faith scattered throughout the Roman world are going to have to appoint elders and leaders, and there's going to need to be pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers to sustain and keep this thing going as they await the return of Christ. I guess in human terms, it's been a while, hasn't it? Because this was uh, 22,000 years ago plus. I guess it's been a while. But you know, maybe for God it hasn't been that long at all. And, and, and don't, miss, don't miss this fact. I mean, we believe Christ could return at any moment. It could be, before I get to the end of this message, it could be tomorrow, or it could be another 2,000 years. In the meantime... Peter has a word for elders. Peter has a word for the women and men that have been appointed to the work of ministry. And so he says, as we partner with God to see the redemption of all things, there's there's important work that has to be done. And Peter says, hey, use this power, not because you must, verse 2, not because you must, but because you're willing to, as God wants you to be. Don't pursue dishonest gain if you want to 
Leverage your power. That way you could because people are entrusting you with lots of things. Don't pursue dishonest gain, but be eager to serve. Don't lord it over those entrusted you, but be an example to the flock. Uh, Peter knows from experience that when you get close to Jesus, there is immense power and there is immense responsibility that comes along with that. And humans aren't always sure what to do with that. Let's go back to the Gospels. Jesus is healing people. He's performing miracles. The wind and the sea obey him. And the disciples figure out, wow, there's power just emanating from this person. I mean, someone just touched his robe and they were healed. This is something I want to be connected to. And in Mark chapter 10, there are two followers of Jesus. Their names are James and John. And Jesus says to them, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's not going to go well. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law. They're going to torture me. They're going to crucify me. But I'm going to be raised to new life three days later. And the disciples are like, yeah, I really don't know what you said there. Uh, that's, that just sounds crazy. Because the next thing, the next thing that happens is they're walking to Jerusalem where all this is going to happen that Jesus just predicted and James and John come to Jesus, they get him off to the side, and they say, hey, would you, is there any way that you can appoint me and my brother to sit at your right and your left? That would be awesome. I mean, I know there's 12 of us. They probably want to sit at your right and left, but something good, something awesome is about to happen because there's power just coming from you like all the time and everywhere, and it's awesome. And can we sit at your right and your left? And Jesus seems to say, did you not hear what I just said? We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be tortured. You cannot drink the cup I'm about to drink. You cannot be baptized with the baptism I am about to experience. Sitting at my right and my left is not for me to decide. It is for my Father because I'm surrendered to Him and to His will and to what He's doing. And wouldn't you know it, there were two people in Jerusalem who sat at the right and the left of Jesus. There were two thieves that were crucified to the right and to the left of Jesus. And so the gospel message is this, is that to sit at the right and the left of Jesus, to be joined with him and what he is doing to save the world, it means that we lay down power. It means that we lay it down. It means that we surrender our influence to the lordship of Christ it means that if we're going to be effective leaders in the church and effective leaders in our businesses and effective leaders in our schools and in our neighborhoods, if God's going to use us in those places, it means that we follow Jesus to the crucifixion and we lay it down. And our selfishness, our ambition, our will, our rights, all of that is crucified on the cross of Jesus. But this amazing thing happens. As, as our will and our rights and our power is laid down and surrendered to the will of the Father, we participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Our will is refined. And then we also participate in the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20. Mary goes to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. She sees where Jesus was, but he is not there. He is risen. And John tells us there was a man at the head and a man at the feet. And they said, why are you here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? There they were at the right and the left of Jesus. And so when we go with Jesus to the cross and when we lay down our power, 
we join in the suffering and our selfishness is crucified on his cross. But on the other side of that, we experience the power of the resurrection and this power flows through us to heal our world. And so this is what Peter is calling elders to be reminded of. One of my favorite devotional writers is is Richard Foster. And he writes this, We all exercise power over others. We are all affected by the power others exercise over us. We can choose the destructive power that is used to dominate and manipulate, or we can choose the creative power that is used to lead and liberate. And Jesus models that for us as he surrenders his power to the will of the Father and entrusts his life to what God is doing in the resurrection. And so, friends, here we are in this world, called to be different, called to use our power differently and to to discern how we can join with God. And, And so, in a world that uses destructive power to dominate and manipulate Followers of Jesus are called to use creative power that loves, that serves, and heals. Do you see that tension? Do you live in that tension? How many times has someone dominated you, manipulated you, coerced you? They've used their position or their resources or even manipulated the relationship they have with you to dominate, manipulate, and coerce you. You've been a victim of that. And sometimes what we want to do is when we've been victimized by that kind of power, we flip it around and we want to do that to others. And that's how the world uses power. But followers of Jesus are called to something else. God has the power that we see in creation where he speaks and worlds are created. And so we can join with God in this creative power and use it to love our world, to serve those around us, and to heal the brokenness in our communities. So this is our calling today. And so Peter has this message to these leaders. He has this message to us. And he invites us to embrace what is commonly called servant leadership. And I just want to quickly walk through the marks of being a servant leader. How does a servant leader use power in this culture and in this context? I've shared with you this before, but I, I am, I just, it's just amazing to me that there are people who do leadership seminars for a living and companies will bring them in and they'll talk to their employees about how to be a better leader and how to be a better manager and how to um, accomplish goals in their company and those kinds of things. And, and, and it's really good stuff and you've probably been a part of that. But I saw where a, a, one of these leadership gurus is now uh, going around and, and talking about servant leadership in the business place and in the marketplace. And as I kind of dug into the program, there was nothing there that referenced Jesus. There was nothing there that referenced the kind of life that Jesus lived. You know what the business community has found out is that servant leadership actually delivers results. That it actually makes healthier workplaces. It actually helps things move forward. And so not because Jesus decreed it to be a good way of living or because the Bible says so or any of the reasons that you're here today, but because it works we see it being played out in the marketplace. And my, 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 my word of caution for us today is we, we, we don't embrace servant leadership because it works. This is not a utilitarian uh, kind of endeavor this morning. We're not just, we're not just trying to 
talk about servant leadership because it works or it's the most efficient way to accomplish the goals that we want. We come into this place to be formed and shaped like Jesus. And so this is the way Jesus led. This is the way Jesus invited others to be a part of this kingdom. And oh, by the way, because Jesus is in the midst of it, his good, pleasing will is done. And when the good and pleasing will of God is done through servant leaders, humans thrive and it's good. But we do it because this is who God is calling us to be and this is who Jesus is. Not because it works. Because make no mistake about it, this approach, not always popular. So what are the marks of a, a servant leader? What are the marks of the servant leader? Peter begins with this, this first mark of a servant leader. You see this in the life of Christ. It's humility. It's humility. Look at what he says there several times in the text. Verse 5, In the same way you are younger, submit to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility. Then he quotes Proverbs. God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And as we think about leading with humility, sometimes you hear that and you think about being in places where you have to be deferential. That humility means you're, you're, you're deferring, you're not making the hard decisions, you're not getting out in front and, and, and doing the kinds of things that need to be done. That's not, that's not at all what Scripture is calling us to do. Jesus wasn't a deferential leader. He stepped out. He did what needed to be done. He took the weight and the shame of the cross. He did what no one else was willing to do. But here's how he did it with humility. His confidence was anchored in his relationship to the Father. And friends, as we think about embodying humility in the workplace, it has to be anchored. Our confidence comes, and it is, we are called to go into those places with confidence. But it's not a confidence in our own strength. It is a confidence in who God is and who Jesus is and who, what, what, what His Spirit is wanting to do through us. That is where our confidence is anchored. Um, this is so important. It's so important that, we, so important that we, we don't miss this. Because in tough situations, in moments where there's a tough call or there's something you got to get out in front of, you got to step into a space and you got to do what no one else is willing to do, you're going to be tempted to pivot to what you know works. You're going to be tempted to pivot to systems of manipulation or coercion or how you can leverage certain things. You're going to be tempted to pivot to that. Where God is calling you to leave out of a place of humility, you're going to be tempted to pivot back to what you know works and what's gotten results in the past. And I think that's why Peter says in verse 7, look, when you're in that space and you're tempted to, to pivot back to what you know works, remember who you're called to be. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety upon him. God, I'm anxious in this moment. I want to push the lever. I want to... I want to push the button. I want to pull the lever. I want to make it happen on my own strength. I can, I, can, I can force this through. Peter says, hey, take all that anxiety that you have about the unknown. Take all of that and cast it upon God. This God who's called you to lead in this space from a position of humility. Cast it all upon Him because He cares 
or you. You know, I hesitate to bring it up this morning because it, it, it puts the church in a bad light. And I hate putting the church in a bad light. Um, plenty of people are doing that. You don't need your preacher doing that on a Sunday morning. But if we don't learn from our mistakes, we're going to repeat them. And so you may have been familiar with this podcast. It's wildly popular. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it chronicles the, the rise of a church in the Seattle area. It's called Mars Hill Church. And they started in 1996. They had a very compelling vision to, to reach people who had never heard about Jesus before. And God blessed it. God blessed the ministry. They were a resource provider for churches all across the, the country. And this, this rise in Mars Hill, it climaxes in 2012 where they decide, hey, let's have Easter at Quest Field. That's where the Seahawks play. So they rented out Quest Field. They invited everyone in the Seattle area to come to Easter. They had 40-something thousand people turn out for Easter service. It was amazing. You look at everything God was doing, and you were saying, man, God was definitely at work doing great things. And I believe with all my heart, He was. But underneath all of the external success of Mars Hill was a leader who refused to lead from a place of humility. In fact, at some point in the rise, as things were happening very quickly and they were doing things that had never been done before, someone came to this leader and said, you know, you need to be mentored. You need, you need to walk along with someone who can help you navigate some of these things. And the podcast tells us his response to that, and this is a quote, I can't be mentored by someone who has a smaller church than me. And since we're the biggest church in America, I guess there's no one to mentor me. I guess I'm going to go it alone. I guess I'm going to do it on my own strength and I don't need anyone's help. You see, we cast our anxiety on the Lord. We care for Him. And if we don't, look what Peter says happens next. Be alert. Be mindful of your blind spots and your weaknesses because your enemy, the devil, roars like a lion. And he wants to devour people who are doing great things for God, but they won't trust in him. They won't humble themselves. Look out for the devil. He always seizes pride. And he always uses that to, to destroy people. And here's what Peter says. Look, if you resist the devil, just like Jesus did in Luke chapter 4 when he resisted the temptations of Christ, if you resist the devil, you stand firm in your faith, you'll, you'll destroy him. I ran, I ran across this quote, and I love it. If you resist God, the devil would destroy you. But if you, in the strength of God, resist the devil, you will destroy him. That's the power that God gives you when you humbly lead and trust in him. So a servant leader leads with humility. Their life is also marked by vulnerability. Vulnerability. And I don't think this is taught in Fortune 500 companies as well, to, to be vulnerable before those that you are leading, to recognize your weaknesses. This shows up in the book of Corinthians where Paul talks about this thorn he has in his flesh. It's a source of weakness. And God ultimately comes to Paul, ministers to him, and says, look, Paul, the thorn was given to you. It's a weakness because I want to make my power great through your weakness. I want to use that weakness to accomplish my divine purposes in your life and in your ministry. God takes our weaknesses and he uses them 
uh, to accomplish his divine purposes in our life. And this is what Jesus modeled. How did Jesus save the world? Was it with a sword? Was it with an army? Jesus became vulnerable and he trusted his life to the will of the Father and he stretched himself out on a cross and there are scars in his hands and there's scars in his feet and there's a scar in his side. These are wounds that, he, that God has used to heal the world. Where are your wounds? Where are you vulnerable? Who's hurt you? Is there a knife in your back this morning? Have you been manipulated, coerced? Have you been the victim? What are your weaknesses? What are your physical weaknesses? All of those things God wants to use to accomplish His divine purposes in your life and in the lives of others. Our friend Henry Nowen says that we are called to be wounded healers. Just as Jesus was a wounded healer, when we become vulnerable and we lead from that place, we too can be a wounded healer. Final thing I'll say about servant leaders, their lives are marked by joy. There is a joy that comes from being surrendered to the will of God. We get to the end of this passage, verse 10, where Peter breaks out into what's called doxology. He just breaks out into praise as he thinks about leaders in, this, in these churches being marked by humility, being marked by vulnerability. He knows that God will be with them and will give them a joy that the world can't explain. Verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, after you have suffered for a little while, what's God going to do? He's going to restore you, and he's going to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He's saying to this young group of leaders, this young church, these elders, there is a joy that comes from being surrendered to the will of God. There's a joy that the world can't give. And so we're going to end today where we began. Several weeks ago, we were with Peter and Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And it's there where Peter was thinking about his betrayal, thinking about how he had let Jesus down. And Jesus comes alongside him and restores him. But he doesn't just forgive him of his sins. He commissions him. And he says to Peter, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. And in just a few days, the day of Pentecost would happen, and Peter would do just that. He would feed the sheep a sermon they had never heard before through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see Peter's life all throughout the book of Acts, feeding and taking care of sheep. But I want us to know that even after the day of Pentecost, It wasn't like Peter's life suddenly took this upward trajectory and there were never any problems. In fact, maybe if you read carefully enough, Peter's life was just as up and down as it was before. There's this moment in Acts chapter 10 where the Lord reveals to Peter he's thinking about things all wrong in terms of the Jews and Gentiles. There's this moment where Peter and Paul, they get into it and there's this confrontation and and Paul corrects some of Peter's theology and we're pretty sure Peter submitted to that. The difference between the Peter in the Gospels and the Peter in the book of Acts and the one who writes this letter is a life surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. A life surrendered to a way of leading that is marked by humility, vulnerability, 
And in doing that, it's now marked by joy. And so, friends, as we think about the kind of people that we are to be in our world, I believe God is calling you to be a person of humility. I believe God's calling you to to allow the wounds that you have to heal others. He's calling us to places of vulnerability. And friend, if you will step out into those places, the promise of God is that there is a joy, there is a contentment, there is a peace that awaits you as you step into those places and, and you become this conduit through which God's grace and mercy and love flows to those around you.